0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you very much for having me. Somehow it seems entirely appropriate to be talking about Jerusalem in a place called the Tabernacle. Um, and um, and so I'm very pleased to be here. More than ever at the moment, um, Jerusalem seems at the centre of the world. As many of you know, in ancient times, in Byzantine times, in Crusader days, um, Jerusalem was regularly described as the centre of the world. To all three religions, it's the universal city. All of us have a vision of Jerusalem. All of us feel we know what we want Jerusalem to be. And all of us want to make that Jerusalem um, in the real Jerusalem. Oftentimes, this expectation, this love of Jerusalem, has led to grave disappointment. And from that comes madness, of course. And this is what is known as the Jerusalem syndrome. Um, Jerusalem syndrome is a is a genuine um, form of madness created by the disappointment or the gap between the heavenly Jerusalem. That we dream of, that we've heard about, and the real mess that is that is the genuine Jerusalem. And in 19, um, in, in, in 2010, the Institute of Psychiatrists over here produced a paper on the Jerusalem syndrome. And um, very helpfully, the, um, the doctors who produced this uh, paper made a list of the things to keep a lookout for. Um, um, amongst tour guides who were taking tours to Jerusalem. And um, I thought I'd share that with you, because certain writers who've been writing about Jerusalem for many years, it's not unknown for writers, too, to be affected by the Jerusalem syndrome. And, in fact, my wife, for one, thinks that I've been slightly touched by it. So these are just a few things for you to look out for um, from this learned paper, um, just in case things begin to go a little awry tonight. And you never know what's going to happen when it's Jerusalem. Now, the tour guides were were told to look out for particularly, obviously, ranting. Well, I'm already doing that. Um, Secondly, for um, manic washing of hair and body at all times. Well, I did have a shower before I came out. Um, They're also told to beware of the the fashioning of toga-like clothes Um, Always white, out of hotel bed linen. I haven't got there yet. Um, And and lastly, or penultimately, they are told to be very careful of um, of guests in the hotel clipping their fingernails and hair and keeping the clippings in a fetishistic manner. Um, I haven't done that, I promise you. And lastly, of course, um, the the hotel guides are warned to look out for the patients going to a a, a famous shrine like this up here, I don't know if you can see that in the sort of dim light, but going up to one of these shrines, the church, the holy sepulchre, the dome, the rock or something, and they're attempting to give a sermon. Well, I'm already doing that, and this is the tabernacle. So um, the madness of Jerusalem is not just, of course, personal. It's also political and religious. And um, it has affected just about everyone who's ever possessed Jerusalem in terms of conquerors, princes, emperors, and it continues to affect people today. It really is the universal city. It's the capital of two peoples, possibly one day two states. Um, It is the shrine for all all the three Abrahamic faiths, Um, and for all three, it is believed that this is the place. In fact, this very place, the Temple Mount, which is that square there, which I think you can all see, that is For all three religions, the place where Judgment Day will take place, the place where the Apocalypse will happen, the Messiah, the Mahdi will return, and that is the place where it will happen. It's paradise, it's the Garden of Eden, it's the Temple Mount, and underneath the Dome of the Rock, the beautiful Islamic building, one of the most beautiful and successful pieces of architecture, I think, ever built, for its amazing simplicity and beauty, and the way it dominates the city, as you can see, Underneath that is the rock, which is, all, which is almost certainly the foundation stone of the Jewish temple of um, King Solomon and, and also of King Herod the Great. And, of course, if you look at that square, that temple mount was created by Herod the Great for his temple. And, of course, though the temple was destroyed, and I'm going to tell you the story of that in a second, that um, the Western Wall, the holiest place for the Jewish people is just there, as you can see. And that, was, that, is, that is one of the remnants of Herod the Great's um, temple mount, his temple, one of the supporting walls. So, in the, in the 21st century, you might expect that Jerusalem would be less fraught than, than usual. But in fact, as we speak today, it is ever more fraught. Um, quite apart from all the expectations of Judgment Day... Um, of the apocalypse, believed by fundamentalist Christians, evangelists in America and elsewhere, of Islamic fundamentalists, of course, of Jewish fundamentalists, who now control um, much of the planning and building in Jerusalem. Um, Quite apart from all that, Jerusalem has become the symbol of Israeli statehood and defiance, of Palestinian aspirations to statehood. It's become a nationalist symbol, and not just a religious one, for the Arabs across the whole Arab world, um, in the terms of um, Iran's campaign for regional hegemony, um, Jerusalem Day, which was started by um, Ayatollah Khomeini in, in about 1980, um, Jerusalem Day is a w- their way to rally not only the, the, their own Shia people but also the Sunnis across the Arab world, and so. Um, concern and pressure is heaped on these, um, on these walls. The delicate stones of Jerusalem are facing more pressure from more directions than ever before. The struggle between secularism and fundamentalism, between democracy and, and tyranny, between Iran and America and so on. So I could foresee a day in the future, in ten years, when there's the Jerusalem I dream of, the Jerusalem where there is tolerance, it's shared, it's open... But I could also imagine a time, five years on, 40 years on, when this, this, this amazing piece of real estate that you see here, the Temple Mount, um, does not exist. It's very small. A shootout there, fundamentalist outrage could destroy it so easily. So we could be in the last days of Jerusalem. We could be in the first days of a sort of new Jerusalem. And that means that Jerusalem is more than ever important today. And hence, I've always wanted to write about Jerusalem. I should just, before we get on to the history, I should say that I've been going to Jerusalem since I was a little boy. Um, By a sort of family coincidence, a family connection, I'd always felt connected to Jerusalem. And though I was writing about, I wrote for a long time about Russian matters, I always um, wanted to write this book, this very book about Jerusalem, particularly since this book didn't exist. And I wanted to read it myself. It's been an absolute education for me. I didn't know... I mean, I was utterly ignorant about Jerusalem by the standards of of the scholarship of these different sections of Jerusalem's history. I think all of us know something about King David, something about Jesus Christ, something about the Crusaders, and something about the Israel-Palestine conflict today. The rest, I didn't know much about. And so it's been a wonderful education for me, and I hope that it's enjoyable for everybody else as well. Um, when I used to go to Jerusalem as a little boy, in the very early 70s and late 60s, when I was, when I was, when I was a child, I, it, was, it was a very strange time in Jerusalem's history. The Israelis had recently conquered it, and yet there was great cooperation between the Palestinian Arabs and the Israelis. I remember going to many um, homes on the West Bank, Palestinian homes, with Israelis, without Israelis, and it was a time when there was a great corpor- feeling of cooperation, Um, And I remember thinking that this must be normal, never realising that this was an absolute exception in Jerusalem's history. Because, for example, in the 20th century, it's it's, it's not really much known now that under British rule, between 1917, for example, and 1948, Jews, for example, were not allowed to blow the shofar um, or to really pray in freedom at the Wailing Wall at all for fear of, of provocation. Under Jordanian rule, Jews weren't allowed to go to the Wailing Wall at all. And so, after 67 was the first time that all faiths could, in theory... I say in theory, because it hasn't turned out the way the theory was meant to turn out. And we, all, we, we know that, and we must recognise that. But in theory, this was the freest time in all of Jerusalem's history. And I mean all of its history, because this book starts 5,000 years before Christ and ends now. And so I've studied it closely... But when I was there, I had this vision of Jerusalem. If I have a passion, it is that... If I have a passionate mission for this book, it is to show both sides that they have impeccable claims to this place and that they need to share it and they need to recognise the other. Now, to, to, um, to refer to very contemporary events, first of all, the history of Jerusalem's always been decided far away from Jerusalem. Tonight the history of Jerusalem may well be being decided by the Cairenes in the streets of Cairo and streets and squares of Egypt, which is a fascinating thought. And no one knows how that will end. But it could lead to war for Jerusalem. It could lead to peace. There are many different, a million different possibilities, and no one knows how that's going to end. And to predict it would be insanity. So that's one thought. The other thought, which is surprisingly hopeful is that the Palestine papers leaked recently from Al Jazeera, which I'm sure you've all read and are interested in. Um, In some ways, that was a disaster for peace. It's caused both sides to withdraw from peace even more than they had before. But there were hopeful signs in that, in those those strange and tainted dealings. One is that the sides were much closer together, actually, than they'd ever been before. Um, The tragedy is that on each side... The other side is never ready when, they're ready, when the other side is to make, ready to make concessions, and that's been a tragedy. At various times, both the Israelis and the Palestinians have made virtually ident- identical proposals to each other, and in both cases, they were refused by the other side at that time. So that's one of the tragedies of it. But one of the hopeful things is the closeness of the, of the negotiating um, positions. And the second thing, which I think is very important and is to do directly to do with Jerusalem, is that... In those, in those papers, you may remember that the Palestinian negotiators um, said to the Israelis, you're going to have a greater lion. They used the Hebrew word, a greater lion than we've, you've ever had before. Um, but now we want to talk about Al-Quds, the Arab, um, the Arab uh, word for Jerusalem, which means the holy. And this was attacked in the Guardian and um, in many places across the Arab world as a sign of appalling grovelling on the part of the Palestinians to the all-powerful Israelis. But I don't look at it like that. And I look at it in a different way. I feel that this is the only way peace is going to be made. And this is my mission with my book, Jerusalem, which is to show each side that they must recognise the narrative, the tragedy, the histories of the other side. And, um, and both have amazing stories. And, and in both cases, the Israelis need to say to the Palestinians, now let's talk about your Al-Quds. And the Arabs, Palestinians need to say to the Israelis, let's talk about your Yerushalayim. So there was some hope in those papers in a way that I think is surprising. Now, where do you start with Jerusalem? I should just say that the family connection that I have with Jerusalem is what made me want to write this book. When I was taken there as a little boy, I was often taken to the Montefiore windmill. Um, A great-great-uncle of mine, a Victorian philanthropist, now thoroughly forgotten but remembered slightly in Jerusalem was called Sir Moses Montefiore. And he went to Jerusalem seven times in the 19th century. He probably went to Jerusalem more than any other Westerner in the 19th century. And he went there and he built, um, in 1860, 150 years ago, exactly, almost exactly, um, he built the first, um, the first uh, small sort of suburb outside the city walls. You can see the, you can see the city walls over there. Um, and he built it sort of over here, where I'm pointing up there. And what he built was some cottages that would not look out of place in, um, in Surrey somewhere, or in Berkshire. And he, built, um, and he built a windmill, which he brought all the way from Kent. And the windmill, the Wanteferi windmill, is still there. And this was the beginning of the city outside the city walls. Now, it may surprise you to know, with all that one reads about Jewish settlements in Jerusalem... That all the all the suburbs outside the city walls in Jerusalem were built after 1860, and his was the first. And both the Jewish and the Arab suburbs, the Arab suburbs like Sheikh Jarrah, and the Jewish suburbs like the Montefiore quarter, which I'm describing, were all started. They were all built around that time. So neither of them are actually particularly ancient. Of course, the ancient the the, 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 city, the ancient city itself, the walled city, of course, is very ancient. We'll talk about that in a minute. So this Montefiore windmill was meant to um, allow the very poor Jews of Jerusalem to feed themselves. And Montefiore, my ancestor, wanted wanted them to live in in these cottages. Well, they were so unsafe outside the walls that they they went and lived there to humour Montefiore. But they then crept inside the city to sleep at night um, and didn't tell him. But um, he was an extraordinary character, a man of great um, bravery. He travelled all over the world to, um, to help... Jews in different, in, in, in different sorts of trouble. And also, he came to, came to Jerusalem repeatedly. He loved Jerusalem. So he adopted Jerusalem as his family motto. And so it's my family motto too. Another reason why I always wanted to write this book. Um, when I was growing up in my family, we were slightly lectured to continually about the great Sir Moses Montefiore. And I, I remember as a child rather finding him an extremely boring subject and I'm um, resenting the fact that all the old people in the family treated him as a sort of Victorian saint. Um, I've, I've, I've since learned that he was a slightly more colourful character than I'd realised. And a recent biography by Abigail Green, superb biography if any of you are interested in him, um, has revealed the shocking news that he was no saint at all. And in fact, at the age of 81, um, had fathered an illegitimate child by his 16-year-old maid which has caused great shock in the family, but has somehow, for some reason, delighted me. Um, so this connection is why I came to Jerusalem and why I've been planning for so long to, to, um, to talk about it and to write about it. Now, I think rather than attempt a at history of the whole um, city of Jerusalem, just while we're standing here, I think I'm going to tell you about a, a, just a single episode in Jerusalem that was absolutely seminal. In... Um, in late July 70 AD about the 8th of Ab or the month of Ab um, 70 AD, the Jewish month of Ab the Caesar, Titus the son of the, the new emperor of Aspasian, ordered the storming the final storming of Jerusalem and I want to give you a little picture since we've got this picture up here of course it's very different now you have to imagine how Jerusalem looked in 70 AD. On the Temple Mount, you can see the esplanade of the Temple Mount, that large rectangular building there. Now, today, built in 691 and afterwards, is the Temple Mount, and is the, um, is the, is the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Two, I must say, the most beautiful religious buildings ever built. The Dome of the Rock is not, a, is not actually a mosque at all. It's a shrine over... The, um, over, the do- over the rock which was the foundation stone of the Jewish temple and in some ways it is the recreation of the Jewish temple for Islam and if you like the commandeering of the Jewish heritage um, but in those days that held Herod the Great's temple Herod the Great's Jerusalem Herod the Great's temple was Jerusalem at its most splendid even today in the 21st century Now it's a vast Jerusalem with over 700,000 inhabitants. But it doesn't even approach the greatness and sumptuousness and magnificence of Herod the Great's Jerusalem. Now Herod the Great was a fascinating character. He was a self-made king. He won the um, the kingdom of Judea by winning the favour of the Romans, Antony and Octavian, who later became Augustus. He was, in many ways, the Jewish Stalin, or the Jewish Henry VIII. He married ten times. He was in love with his, his second wife, passionately in love, Princess Marianne, who was one of the Maccabean or Hasmonean dynasty. So she was the rightful, in a way, a member of the rightful dynasty, the Jewish dynasty that ruled Judea. Herod was, was the son of, a, of Antipater, who was a, a child of a convert to Judaism, and an Edomite convert at that. So he was regarded as an absolute mongrel. So he was Jewish on his father's side. His mother, Cyprus, was actually Arab from Labatea in Nam Petra, which many of you may have visited in Jordan. So the Jews of Judea, Jerusalem, regarded Herod as an absolute um, mongrel. And they didn't want to be ruled by him. Not only was he mongrel, he was a Roman stooge. And not only that, but his name Herodes is Greek. It means hero. But he was essentially a, a very, very Greek, Hellenic um, Hellenic culturally and this was also very anti-Jewish. But he wanted to be king of the Jews. And through Roman backing, he became king of the Jews. As, as, an, as a husband, as a king, in every way, he was an absolute monster. He killed three of his own sons himself, which, which is a record that beats any other um, of the monsters who killed their own sons in history. Um, he killed, he admittedly only killed one of his wives, not the two that we, um, that we know so well from Henry the Great. Um, from um, Henry VIII but the wife he killed, Princess Mariam or Queen Mariam, one, one of the royal family, was famous for her beauty, her intelligence her grace, and she and Herod had a passionate um, affair passionate marriage of half hatred, um, half love, and she had contempt for the Herod's family she knew she was royal, and yet there was a, there was a, there was a passionate sexual attraction between the two of them their marriage was incredibly destructive. It ended with her plotting against him, aided, in fact, by Cleopatra, the famous Cleopatra of, e- of Egypt. And in the upshot of this tragedy, he had her strangled in public, garroted in public, this woman that he loved. And she, it was said by witnesses who watched carefully that she died absolutely like a Maccabean queen, with absolute grace, betraying nothing. She was only in her late 20s when this happened. Herod himself went absolutely mad on the night he killed her. He wandered his palaces, screaming for her, looking for her. And Talmudic tradition says that afterwards he had her embalmed in honey, which is an interesting metaphor, which says all you need to know about their relationship. It's macabreness. It's shocking destructiveness. And yet also... It's decaying sweetness. So, that was Herod the Great. But Herod the Great was also one of the most extraordinary statesmen of his time. He decided he would make Jerusalem greater than it had ever been since Solomon. And he set about this. He built a massive palace um, to the left of this picture, which has now vanished completely. But it was, a, it was said to be the most sumptuous that anyone had ever seen. It had dove cuts, fountains, canals... And and many great towers. The last of the towers is the basis for, is is known as David's Tower. Later in Jerusalem's history, um, just about anything that was large and impressive was believed to have been built by King David. And in fact, virtually everything connected with David was actually built by Herod. But that's that's one of the fascinating things about Jerusalem. First of all, nothing is quite what it seems. Secondly, the myths are as interesting as the facts. And it's my job as historian in writing this book to really to chronicle both facts and myths. And the third thing is that everybody wants to commandeer the sacredness and the history of the faith that came before. So the Christians commandeered the heritage of the Jews, the Muslims have commandeered the heritage of both. And this is also true in buildings. There are buildings in Jerusalem that literally have been holy to one one after another in succession each of them believing it's their own shrine and each of them claiming it. When they no longer needed those shrines, sometimes they moved on completely and completely forgot that they'd ever worshipped that. A quick example is Mount Zion. I don't know if any of you have been to Mount Zion. But Mount Zion is the place where Jesus is said to have had the Last Supper. It's also the place where at Pentecost the apostles spoke, um, spoke in voices. And... This place was, is definitely, was definitely an ancient synagogue and definitely um, one of the earliest Christian um, places of prayer. Not, not a church, but it certainly was the earliest Christian shrine. Now, it remained Christian for a long time. In the Crusader period, the, the, the Byzantines built an enormous church there. And in Crusader times, while, while building there, they knocked into a room. And this room, they decided was a tomb. And it had to be the tomb of King David, of course, because isn't everything in Jerusalem something to do with King David? So they built a cenotaph there, and they decided that this was the tomb of David. Now, the Jews, who were were totally banned by the Crusaders on pain of death, but gradually they came back. And when the Crusader kingdom fell, the Jews began to honour this place as David's genuine tomb even though it had only been discovered 100 or 200 years earlier and was absolutely nothing to do with David, as far as we know. After all, David was, was 1,000 BC. The Crusaders were 1,000... Well, 1099 AD. So we're talking 2,000 years out here. And yet the, yet the Jews began to pray there. In Mamluk times in the Middle Ages, the Mamluk sultans, who ruled, of course, from Cairo, how often Cairo has been, has, has been involved in Jerusalem's history how often Jerusalem has been ruled from Cairo. Now, the the, um, the and Mamaluk sultans, they heard about these Jews praying in this Christian site to King David and they decided, hang on a sec, if this is holy to the Jews and if this is King David's tomb, it must be holy to the Muslims. So they threw out both and made it into a mosque and a Muslim site. So by this time it had been all three. Now, jump ahead to 1948. In 1948, the nascent Jewish state, Israel, lost access, as I mentioned earlier, to the Western Wall, the holiest site in all of Jewish culture and religion. So the Jews then needed a a place to pray. So on Mount Zion, David's tomb became the holiest place in Jewish religion. And many Jews went there on pilgrimage and prayed there. But in 1967, the Jews took the rest of Jerusalem, took the old city, and it was, there were wonderful scenes as they approached the Western Wall. Basically, they, bas- they totally forgot David's tomb in Mount Zion. But it was no longer Muslim, and so now it's totally almost a Christian site. There's still a sort of small synagogue there. There's the remains of a mosque there, but it's a Christian shrine. I'll just tell you this story just to show, in one um, short example, how Jerusalem has evolved, how complicated it is, and how religiosity, sanctity in Jerusalem, is infectious. In fact, it's an epidemic. Let me go back to 17. In in the years before the birth of Christ, King Herod built his greatest edifice of all his works. He was an amazing builder. He built the stones, that were some of which were 50 foot long, and weighed 200 tons. Yet they managed to move these stones around Jerusalem. And his greatest thing he built, I mentioned his palace. Then he built, on the far top left-hand corner of the Temple Mount, just outside, he built the Antonia Fortress, a colossal fortress to watch the Temple Mount. And then he set about building the temple itself. It took, it took 30, 40 years to complete the temple, and it was astonishing. Um, all writers about it say that it was one of the, was, was one of the wonders of the world, it amazed everyone who saw it. When, people approach, when the sun shone on it, it was like um, it, the whole thing seemed to be made of gold. Because the stones were that golden stone that you see on the western wall there. The amazing thing about it was that if you approached it from the, from the mountains around Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, by the way, is built on two mountains. This one is called Mount Moriah. As you approached it and you saw the sun hit the, um, the temple of King Herod, you literally felt you were looking at a mountain covered in snow. It was that beautiful. And right in the centre of it all, at this end, at this end was the royal portico, a huge portico. And that was the place where Jesus Christ um, threw out the lenders. At the other end, there was also a portico. And in the middle, right where the Dome of the Rock stands today, was the Holy of Holies. Um, Pompey the Great, the, um, the Roman soldier-statesman, Went into, was one of the very few people who'd actually walked into the Holy of Holies. He'd been told by Greeks and other critics, critics of Jewish mono, mono atheism, that inside there'd be the head of a ram or some sort of idol. But when he went inside Pompey, he was amazed and deeply impressed to see there was absolutely nothing inside. And so that was, what, that was the Jewish version of, um, of, of, of God. Now, many years after Herod the Great, I should say that Herod the Great died in 4 BC, in the most terrible way possible. And Christian writers always regarded his death as punishment for the massacre of the innocents, when it was said that he'd killed all the children in Judea to stop the birth of a single child, Jesus Christ. Now, Herod the Great, as I said, was the Judean Stalin. His crimes are many and varied and appalling in their um, detail. But uh, ironically, the crime for which he's most famous is the one crime he didn't commit. There was no massacre of the innocents as far as we know. It's very unlikely that Herod the Great ever heard of Jesus Christ. And um, he died horribly, though. He died um, of... He, he putrefied while he was alive. Um, his stomach swelled up. He screamed in agony. He, um, his scrotum and his stomach um, both swelled together until they gave birth to worms, which had laid eggs in them. And as he died howling, his son, his eldest son, who was in prison, waiting for judgment, thought that at last he'd succeeded to the throne after all this waiting. And he cheered and said, let me out, I'm king. But unfortunately Herod wasn't quite dead. And when he heard this, he said, what was that shouting? And the jailer said, I'm afraid it was your eldest son, your majesty. So one of his last acts was to kill his eldest son. And then he died. Now, um, The story of the Herods is one of the most exciting stories um, in in the story of Jerusalem. And most of it, the story of Herod is quite well known, but the rest of them are little known. Just a whiz through to bring us up to where where I'm I'm, I'm going to tell you the story. His son, Herod Antipas, succeeded him as ruler of Galilee. The the kingdom was split up. And he was the man for whom Salome danced, the, the dance of the seven veils, and for whom the head... ...of John the Baptist was brought up on a silver platter. That was Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. It was also Herod Antipas um, to whom Pilate sent Jesus Christ to be judged... ...and who refused to judge him. That was Herod Antipas. The next Herod to rule was King Herod Agrippa I... ...who was the greatest of all the Herods apart from Herod the Great. And he was an amazing character, a rogue, a complete adventurer... Um, an attractive figure. I don't know if any of you remember I, Claudius, but he appeared in that. He was best friends with a highly unsavoury heir to the Roman Empire, Gaius Caligula. And Herod Agrippa was best friends with him. While he was out talking with, with, in his chariot with Caligula, they were saying, I really hope the dreadful old emperor Tiberius dies soon. And their charioteers sneaked on them. And so Herod Agrippa was thrown into jail. Waiting for execution, but fortunately, at that moment the emperor Tiberius died. Caligula succeeded, and he literally freed um, Herod Agrippa from his shack. He actually had shackles on, and Caligula made for him golden shackles of pure gold to replace the ones he was wearing, and he made him a king right there and then. So it was hell of a rise, a hell of a rise, a meteoric rise to power. from the the condemned man's cell to the king of Judea and king of Jerusalem. Um, He stayed in in Rome a lot. He saved Jerusalem, in fact, from one of Caligula's insane um, attempts to make the Jews worship himself. And he was with Caligula in his entourage when Caligula was assassinated in 41. Amazingly, I think this is probably the the most powerful moment that a Jew had ever been in the history of the Roman Empire. He was there with the body... He hid the body of Caligula, telling everyone he was alive. He then found Claudius, another great friend of his, a stammering scholar, a limping scholar, who was the last member of the family left alive by the outraged um, pra- 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 praetorians who were rioting through Rome. And he persuaded him to accept the empire. Claudius became emperor, and Herod Agrippa got even more lands until he ruled the, much of all of present day Palestine, parts of Lebanon, Syria, and so on, and Jordan. So he became one of the great success stories. He sort of helped make an emperor, which is a fairly unusual. He then died. And after that, the Judea and Jerusalem returned to Roman management. The Romans were incredibly corrupt. The governors were inept and, um, and, and became hugely unpopular. In 66, in the rule of Nero, um, the Jews rebelled. And um, Nero, faced, facing rebellions and revolt, committed suicide in 68. Now we're almost up to where I start, was telling you my story. While the Roman Empire rushed through hailing emperors um, and then destroying them, in, in Judea, in here, the Jews ruled themselves again. But it was not a peaceful rule. Uh, it, was, it was like the rule of gangster clans, of brigands um, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was divided between three different um, brigand sort of gangster bosses all of them fighting in Jerusalem in a savage fight to the death. Jerusalem was like a wild beast devouring itself for four years. And even though this is now looked back on in by Israeli, sort of orthodox, uh, traditional Israeli historians, as a great period when, when Israel was independent again. It was sort of independent, but, but by God, it was not a very happy time to be living in Jerusalem. Now, they thought they'd got away with it, but in 69... Uh, And the Romans appointed a new emperor, Vespasian. And Vespasian is now um, known... He was known around the Roman Empire as the muleteer. And that tells you a lot about his character. He'd made his money through dealing mules for the Roman Empire. He was not an outstanding general, but he was dependable. And that's why he was sent by, by Nero, when Nero was still alive, to retake Jerusalem. But in the process, he started to march his way down through Israel, down through Galilee... And while he was in Galilee, he stormed with his son Titus um, some, all the Jewish castles. And while he was there, he stormed the, the headquarters of a Jew called Josephus, who was one of the rebel leaders. Now, this Josephus was brought before them, uh, brought before Vespasian and his son Titus. He was about to be executed. He then did a very clever thing. Um, he said, wait, wait, I've, had a, I've, had a, I've, had a, I've heard from a fortune teller, I've had a psychic vision I've got something to announce to both of you, but only in private. Now, In this time of augurs and premonitions and prophecies, these sort of things were taken very seriously. So the two Roman generals sent everybody out and they said, What is it? And he said, You are going to be emperor and ruler of the world at any minute. So the thought, We'll keep this guy alive just in case. (laughs) And of course, a few weeks later, by completely, we couldn't have predicted it, he was emperor of the Roman world. So at that point they called out this Josephus who became one member of their entourage and he took the name Josephus. That wasn't his original name. His real original name was, was Joseph Ben Mattathias. Now he became Josephus Flavius. He took the name of the Vespasians' family and he joined their entourage as they marched south on Jerusalem. Now at 17, Vespasian has gone off to Rome to, to sit on his throne. But the entire dynasty's success, the new Flavian dynasty's success depends on them subjugating this city, this place. Now, you've got to imagine that um, Herod's, Herod's uh, temple is not just a temple, it's not just a shrine, it's a fortress, filled with buildings, almost, um, almost um, impossible to storm. You see these very high walls all around it, some of them as high as, 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 as cliffs. And that's why you remember from one of them on the other side, over there, the far one, which is just off the picture, that was the pinnacle where Jesus was said to be tempted by the devil. That's how high it was. So anyway, so Titus approaches Jerusalem in 70, and in April, um, all the um, Jews arrive from all over the world to do that to, to celebrate Passover in this temple. No one takes seriously the fact that the Romans are going to take Jerusalem. After all, it's been four years; they've been five emperors since 66, and two false Nero's as well, as if one real Nero wasn't enough. So the Jews were convinced that, they would, that the Romans would never dare storm Jerusalem. But Titus, for Titus, who was the young, he was about, only about 30, he was young, he, was dim, he had a dimple, he was sh- squat, he had a big smile, and he was, a, he was an incredibly beloved figure, Titus. People used to say um, of Titus, that he was the people's darling. More than that, Titus used to say, I've wasted a day if he hadn't given a present to some of his friends. So he was a wonderful friend, but he was a terrible enemy, a ruthless general, and he had everything to gain by taking Jerusalem. When he arrived um, soon after the Passover, he trapped, with his 60,000 troops, uh, Roman legionnaires, he trapped thousands upon thousands of Jews in the city. Now, some of them were rebels, some of them were Jerusalemites, some of them were refugees, some of them were pilgrims who'd come for Passover. Jerusalem had never been so crowded. There may have been 500,000 people in this small city, crammed in there. And as soon as they arrived, the Jewish chieftains, the brigands inside, made peace and decided to fight together. Now, first of all, what happened was Titus set up camp north of the city, You can't really see, but beyond the walls up there. He immediately tried to storm the walls, the first and second walls, and they fell quite quickly. But when it came to the temple and the Antonia Fortress, that big fortress at the top left of the Temple Mount, it became more difficult. He tried to wow the city. He held a huge parade out there on the side of of the Mount of Olives where he paraded his whole army in their gleaming phalanxes to impress the Jerusalemites, but they weren't going to surrender. They were convinced that, they would never, that Jerusalem would never fall. Then he stormed the Antonia with a huge loss of life. He took the fortress and he destroyed it, keeping just one tower which he made his headquarters, which is right next to the top of the temple. And while he was in there, he was surrounded by his entourage. There was Josephus, who you've already met. But there wasn't just Josephus. There were other Jews who were, who were supporting him. And one of them was King Herod Agrippa II, the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who had built the whole temple that he was about to storm. He was supporting Titus Caesar as well. And there was not only that. There was a woman, a beautiful princess, Herod Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa II's sister, Berenice, was one of the most beautiful women of her day. She was exceedingly wealthy. She was 40 years old, but Josephus, who was there, said that she was at the height of her beauty, physical, and her fa- uh, with her body and face. And the Romans, who resented, him, who resented Titus having a Jewish mistress, they called her the Jewish Cleopatra, which was a serious insult. But nonetheless, she was there too. And as Titus planned to destroy and to take the Jewish temple, the great-granddaughter... But the man who built it was in his bed as his mistress, which is quite a thought. So that was the entourage. uh, By the way, I should just give you a picture of of what it looked like around Jerusalem at this time. The siege went on for four months. The the pain, the agony, the torture, the torment really resembled something like the Warsaw Ghetto, Battle of Stalingrad. Obviously, it was before the age of explosive... But if you can imagine one of the tragedies of the 20th century, that's what it was like. The people inside were starving. They were desperate. People literally walked the streets and, until they literally fell, where they, they, they just died, where they, where they fell and were left there. Um, outside the city, anyone who tried to escape, Titus actually crucified them. He crucified 500 people a day. The reason why there were no forests around Jerusalem is because of this. The Romans used every tree as crucifixes, to crucify Jews. And because many of the legionnaires were Syrians and Greeks from Judea who hated the Jews with all the passionate, intimate hatred of neighbours, um, they enjoyed crucifying them and torturing them enormously. And they crucified them in grotesque shapes on these crucifixes around the hills. So it was like a forest of death, of these kind of groaning, agonised people dying um, out in the, um, in the sun and then becoming five-blown and embalmed by the boiling hot Judean sun. Grotesque scenes. But worse was to come, because as they escaped from Jerusalem, the Jer- people in Jerusalem would, try- would eat their money. They would eat gold in order to smuggle it out so they, didn't- they weren't robbed. And as- when, the, um, when the Syrian and Greek legionnaire- legionaries discovered this, they regularly stopped everybody and just disemboweled them alive and then searched and sieved through their intestines to find the gold. Even Titus, a squeamish, an extremely unsqueamish Roman soldier, was appalled by this, but he couldn't stop them doing it because the prophets were so great. So grotesque scenes outside Jerusalem. Inside Jerusalem, things were worse. Everyone was starving. At first, the, um, the Jewish brigands who were in control, the sort of terrorists, if you like, um... Uh, partied so hard in Jerusalem they, pour, they wore female makeup, they wore perfume, they put on women's dresses and they covered themselves in blood and danced through the streets but as the siege set in and starvation, starvation took its toll whole families died in their houses without anyone noticing. Even though it was against Jewish law, no one could bury them and they often just pushed them over the walls where they fell, putrefying in heaps beneath the walls Inside, Inside the city hunger Made people behave in even more um, irrational ways. There was, there was spymania. There was paranoia. There were trials. There were, there was, there were murders. Um, there was adultery, even though um, people were starving and weak. Um, terrible things happened. As people buried people, they fell into the graves dead themselves. And finally, the brigands, the armed men who had control of the city, began to search house to house for food. And they began to disembowel people, not only to find if they had money, which was almost worthless to them, but just to find seeds in their stomachs that they could eat. Even though they'd been inside a dead person, a living person's stomach, they would eat them. They ate the bridles of horses. They ate horses. They ate rats. They ate cats. They ate everything. Outside Outside the city, packs of wolves and dogs... And jackals, et, feasted on the bodies. It was a scene from, it was truly a scene from hell. And finally, on the, uh, one, one famous case, they smelt cooking. They smelt cooking in Jerusalem. And the crowds gathered outside a house as they tried to find where it came from. And when they broke in, they found a woman had cooked her own children and was eating them. And even the brigands, who were desperately hungry, wouldn't eat this and were appalled. So these were the terrible scenes that happened on these very hills that you can see. And finally, on the 8th of Ab, just before the anniversary of the date, the famous date in Jewish history when um, Nebuchadnezzar had stormed and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC, 500 years before, and it had been rebuilt that time, of course. But on the aniver- almost on exactly the anniversary of this date, Titus said, ''Enough, we're going to storm the city.'' And whatever happens, happens. If we lose the temple, we, lose, we destroy the temple. So the far end of the esplanade, up there, where he was based, he ordered the gates of the temple to be lit on, lit on fire and hoping that this would provoke um, the Jewish fighters to come out. Battle was joined, but the, but the molten, but the silver and gold on these gates ran and ran into the temple. And inside the temple, it spread the fire. Titus was furious. He ordered his troops to put out the fire. And as the troops tried to put out the fire, the Jews attacked them from inside the temple, right at the top there. Battle was joined. The Jews were driven back. Thousands were killed. And at this point, Titus said, "Okay, put out the fire. I'm going to bed. In the morning, we're going to storm Jerusalem. We're going to storm the temple. But as he went to bed, his own legionaries were now absolutely hungry with bloodlust at the defiance of Jerusalem and the number of men lost, and one of them ran into the city and threw a firebrand, probably dipped into the molten gold um, threw a firebrand into one of the buildings, the complex builder, complex of buildings at that far end. Everything went on fire because every, every window had incredibly ornate. Um, veils and curtains and so on, and inside everything was expensively um, panelled with beautiful sycamore wood and, and cypress. Everything suddenly caught fire, and the next thing they knew, other legionaries were spreading the fire. Some of the Jews could only watch in horror as the Romans fought their way in, and finally they decided they'd better wake Titus himself. They ran in. They said, Tit- they said Caesar, the place is on fire. What do we do? Do we charge in? Do we go? He, he, he ran in after them. He ordered them to stop the fire, but other legionaries just ignored him. His own troops were insubordinate. They spread the fire throughout, and they fought their way into the temple. A terrible battle took place as, they, as, as the fire spread. And finally, one of the Roman legionaries threw the fire into the central part you can't see it here. But in the, where the Dome of the Rock now stands was the Holy of Holies. And around it were two courtyards. And around these two courtyards were ornate buildings filled with the treasury of the temple. Everything was gold in there. It was incredibly sumptuous. And in there were the records of, of all Judea families and so on. Amazing treasures were there. They all caught fire. And as the fighting raged around, um, many of the Jews um, fought out beside the temple and inside, right inside these courtyards around the the altar where the Jews had always made made their sacrifices. Um, Titus actually was able to look into the Holy of Holies, the first non-Jew since Pompey to do so, before the fire became overwhelming. The battle um, now raged right around the Holy of Holies itself. 10,000 Jews made a last stand there, and like a blood sacrifice, um, after all, this was the place where cows and sheep were regularly sacrificed they were sacrificed on the temple till the place was awash with blood and by the time it was morning titus found himself master of the temple at last the jewish fighters um, fled through tunnels jerusalem is still a city of tunnels to other parts of jerusalem and the battle actually went on for another month but the temple had fallen inside the Roman soldiers ran amok. They, 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 they piled their um, arms with gold and treasure. They, they, um, they killed everyone they found. They found about 5,000 women and children in one of the places. They massacred all of them and burnt, burnt them alive. And so the temple of Jerusalem, Herod's great temple, fell in 70 AD. And Titus made the decision, there and then, to destroy the Jewish temple. And... Um, must have been a hell of an, a, a hell of an engineering job to do this. His men must have worked for days. The stones were so enormous. As I said some of them were 200 tons. And if you go into the tunnels that run alongside this western wall, beginning just there near the near the western near the wall itself, um, you can see a 200-ton stone. How they moved it um, is, is an amazing feat, rather like the creation of the pyramids. But anyway. Um, the Jews were conquered, and he began to destroy um, the the, the temple itself. They pushed, from here, Roman legionaries pushed off the side the huge stones. They crashed to the bottom. And if you can see in this part here, it's very faded, isn't it? But if you can see some stones there, they found them after 1967. um, In 1968, when they started to do the archaeology, they found the stones lying exactly where they'd lain, um, these huge stones in a pile. They also found in the shops that ran alongside um, the temple, they found um, fascinating things. They found a heap of gold hidden in a shop front, um, hidden under the doorway. And this, of course, must have been hidden in those last minutes before the Romans broke into the city to destroy the whole city. Someone must have thought, "Oh, I'll hide my last money there and I'll come and get it later. But probably they never did. On another building, in here in the Jewish court it's been discovered, a female arm, just a skeletal arm, is found across the threshold of a doorway of a burnt house. The whole city was burnt. The, in the, um, the treasures of the temple were taken to Rome and marched their way through in the triumph of Titus. You've probably seen in the, um, in the, uh, great, the famous arch in Rome. And, and uh, the Jews... It was, it, the, the, the Flavian emperors decided that the Jews would never be independent again, the temple would never be rebuilt again, and nor has it been rebuilt again, despite some moments when it almost was rebuilt um, at various times in history. So that's why, for, for Jews, the holiest site is the wall, all that's left of Herod's temple, um, this wall. And this, is the sto- this, is, this was incredibly important in, in, in Jerusalem's history. This is partly why, partly I've told you it because I think it's a rather amazing story. But partly I've told you it because this was the seminal moment. During the siege, a Jewish um, rabbi called Ben Zakkai was carried out of Jerusalem in a coffin. And that coffin, when it was opened when he'd left the city, it symbolized the rebirth of Judaism, no longer based on the temple, no longer based on sacrifice of animals at the altar beside the Holy of Holies, but based on the Torah, on the law, and on loving-kindness as ideas. And so it was the beginning of what we now call Judaism, which was different from te- the, the temple Judaism. At the same time, just as the, wall, just as the Romans closed in on Jerusalem, a small sect of Jewish, the Jewish Christians, who were, still, who were still run and governed by the family of Jesus Christ, it had been a hereditary business, Jesus was succeeded by his brother James and now the leader of these Christians was his cousin Simon. They had left Jerusalem and they never never returned um, until until the temple had fallen. And so in a way, this was the moment that the Christianity separated forever from, from Judaism, the mother religion. And from now on, to Christians, for a long time... The Temple Mount became a symbol of the destruction of the Jews, that the vanquishing of their idea, and therefore the fact that God had withdrawn his blessing from the Jews and given it to the new Israel, Christianity. At the same time, almost six, around 600 years later, for Islam, the fall of the Jewish Temple meant the same thing. It meant that there was a new revelation. There had been a succession. God had withdrawn his blessing from the Jewish people. And now he could give it, Muhammad believed, to the new, to the new revelation of Islam. And hence, when the, when the um, Muslims took Jerusalem and when um, they started to build, they built on the temple site a sort of replacement of the temple, a successor to the temple. So this story is a vital moment. I begin the book with this, with this, um, this event, The Fall of Jerusalem and the Destruction. And I think... I shall not, I've i actually talked rather too long. Forgive me. But um, that was, this is just a little episode that tells you how Jerusalem became Jerusalem. Now, I've gone on very late. Um, and um, but if, if I've gone on too long, put it down to Jerusalem syndrome. Um, now, I promise you, I haven't started clipping my nails yet and keeping them. But if, we, if anyone has a few questions, I, I'd be thrilled to answer them, though we, have, we don't have very much time. I, don't, I think I...
0: I read somewhere that
1: the Crimean War was started by a quarrel in Jerusalem. Um, yeah, question, Crimean War. Crimean War did really start in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem. Um, in, 1946 and 1947, in 1846 and 1847, priests um, in, the, um, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Church of the Nativity also in Bethlehem um, started um, battles to control those religious shrines. And this has been a feature, one of the most fascinating features of Jerusalem throughout history has been the battle between the Christian sects themselves, particularly between the Orthodox versus the Armenians, to control the great great Christian shrines. Um, It was only only in 2005, there was a huge fight um, during the Holy Fire Ceremony at Easter between the Orthodox and the um, Armenians. And these fights are very vicious, by the way. I mean, people have been killed in them. In the 19th century they used everything in these fights. And in the ones that, that, that um, occurred just before the Crimean War, um, the fighters were priests, but they used um, knives, machetes, pistols, and, and even um, and candelabra to fight each other, and several were killed. And this fighting continues today. But at that point, the Orthodox were backed by Russia, uh, the Catholics, the Latins were backed by France, and this caused um, the Crimean War which was essentially a battle for the holy sites in Jerusalem. Today, uh, you uh, meet many Jews in Israel uh, who, when you ask them, uh, would the temple ever be rebuilt, would say, no, but the creation of the state of Israel under a unified Jerusalem under Israeli rule is our third temple. What do you think of that? Well, that's quite a harmless solution to the problem. Um, but obviously, I mean, one of, the, one of the things which Israel has got right in, in Jerusalem, as soon as they conquered it in June 1967, Moshe Dayan, who was the defense minister, um, took a decision that was absolutely vital, and I think was absolutely the right decision, and a decision that was, was truly statesmanlike. He said, um, the, um, the Muslims will have absolutely, absolute governance over the Temple Mount. Jews will be banned from there and will not be allowed to pray there. Jews will have the Western Wall as their shrine. And um, and that is the the deal that has stuck till now. And it's absolutely the right deal. Um, So if Jews want to regard Israel itself as a third temple, that solves the problem. The danger comes from the terrifying idea. And I said at the beginning that I can imagine a Jerusalem where... um, ...lunatic fundamentalists of one stripe or another could destroy the city. Well, one, one way that could happen is for, um, is for Jewish fundamentalists to try to blow up the, um, the shrines... ...which would be one of the greatest tragedies in, in all of history for many, many different reasons. Um, reasons that are human, that are religious, that are artistic, that are political. It would be an absolute disaster. And in fact, one of the fascinating things about if you go to the temple night now... Um, the the very rude Israeli um, policemen who stop you going onto the Temple Mount are usually not not Jews at all. They're usually Galilean Arabs or Druze. And their job is to stop Jews getting onto the Temple Mount, um, which is ironic. But that's their main mission. Because the state of Israel knows it would be utterly disastrous if any of the tiny number of, um, of extremists... Who want to create a new actually do want to create a new temple on the Temple Mount. If they got their way, that would be a disaster. Yes, um, in, the answer to both your questions. I don't know if you could hear that. Was Herod the Great a Jew? Yes, he was a Jew, um, and some Jews recognised him as, as a Jew, but many did not, and many hated him. And Jesus Christ himself and his and his followers, and John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, they hated the Herodian family, and. Um, Jesus famously described, um, when he was talking about Herod Antipas, he said, Herod Antipas, that fox, um, which was, by which he meant a, he was a jackal. But your second question on Josephus was, yes, the Josephus I described um, as, as in the entourage and who recognized Vespasian as a future emperor, this was Josephus, the historian, who wrote what is one of the greatest works of war journalism um, living history and memoir that has ever been written. And you should all read it. And reading all of it, for me, was one of my um, greatest, um, greatest joys. And I think his passage, where he describes the burning temple and the noise that came from the screaming Jews, the marauding Romans, and then the cracking of the great stones as the heat, as the inferno rose, that could be heard all the way to the mountains of Moab in Jordan. This is one of the great passages of history writing, has ever been written, and I recommend that you all read it. Ladies and gentlemen, I think I should call it a night, um, if, 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 if that's okay. Thank you very much for having me tonight.
0: Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships.